Well, most of you would expect a Civil War illustration from Pastor Mark, but I've got one this morning. In 1863, the country was locked in a brutal battle, divided between North and South, divided ideologically, culturally, geographically, brother against brother, and had descended into some of the most bloody and most uh, brutal parts of the fighting. And Abraham Lincoln picked up a, an old habit, something that had been set aside for a time. He called for a day of humiliation and prayer and fasting. And this is something that had happened in the, the founding years of the country. President Washington had called for one. President Adams had called, had called for one. Lincoln had called for one before. And in 1863, he proclaimed another day of humiliation, prayer, and fasting. I just want to read a, a little section out of this. Out of his speech here. Lincoln said, In so much as we know that by his divine law, that is God's divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world. May we not justify fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reformation as a whole people, we have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our sins, and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. I read this not as, not, not as some reflection of Lincoln's godliness. You can read the biographies and decide whether or not you think he was a believer, but he was a man who was steeped in Christian teaching. And these words, I, I read them because... I hope that you feel the same way that I do. Namely, as I read these, they are alien to us. Not just alien to our country. I think in many ways they're alien even to us as believers. Who speaks like this anymore? We are so accustomed to a positive Christianity. A Christianity that has place for blessings. A Christianity that has place for prosperity. A Christianity that has place for comfort and security, promises, but very little place for humiliation. And as we read this passage today, this is, I think, one of the hardest-hitting passages in the Bible. 
James is going to take us places that we don't often go, and we need to go here because we don't go here on our own. I want to, as we, as we ponder this call for humiliation, I want you to listen to James's call for humiliation here. James chapter 4, starting in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to enter into this passage and we're going to see several things here. This tone of humiliation continues throughout and I want us to really sit in this and ponder it. James gives us in this passage a warning about a dangerous friendship, but he matches that with a greater hope. And in fact, that's the high point of this passage, a greater hope before he gives us a call to action, a call to action. That's where we're going today. So let's begin with this warning he has at first here about a dangerous friendship, namely some accommodation to the world. He begins with this phrase at the beginning of verse four there that is, um, uh, you know, it's hard to put into words. In Greek, it's literally adulteresses, adulteresses. And the point that he's making here, through this whole passage really, he's picking up the Old Testament teaching about spiritual rebellion against the Lord. And he's not saying that's something that's past. <laughs> he's not just looking back and saying, aren't we glad that we're not like those people? He's saying to the church, you spiritual adulteresses, you have dishonored the Lord. You have walked in rebellion against him. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, especially the prophets. Not, not for any, any gain, not to win friends and influence people, but the prophets regularly came back to this point. Israel, you have committed adultery against the Lord. And we see it most clearly, for instance, in the book of Hosea, that prophet who God says, go, marry an adulteress, marry a prostitute, in fact. She will turn against you. She will, she will betray you. But I want you to continue to seek her out because I, the Lord, seek out you, my adulterous people. I'm not giving up on you. This image is very graphic to us. It's intended to be graphic. And it's all the more graphic in, among people who value faithfulness. 
among people who think that marital faithfulness is significant, James intends to get right up in our faces and call us back to God, you adulterous people. And this is all the more surprising if you remember where James has been in this book. Over and over, he refers to his, uh, his readers as beloved brothers and sisters. James isn't a jerk. <laughs> James, James isn't an angry man. He's caring. He's compassionate and loving. He's a Christian. But he will not overlook sin. Beloved brothers and sisters, and at the same time, those who are compromised in certain ways. Here's James's warning. There can be no compromise with the world. There is no neutral ground between God and the sinful world around us. So we have to ask then, what, what does he mean when he says, you, you cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God, or friendship with the world leads to hostility between you and God. Well, what is the world? First, the world represents everything that's opposed to God and his ways. Don't think of the physical creation, things that you can touch and feel. Don't think of just the things that are created and you can see. Don't just think of the people around you. The world, as it's used in Scripture, is a description of spiritual powers as they exist. Not just outside of us, though. They creep into our own lives, into our own desires. The world is the spiritual force that would seek to upset God's purposes. The world is an alternative way of living and thinking. God is love, we're told. But the world wants to take that good thing and pervert it, turn it, change it. So the world is everything that's opposed to God. It's hard to make it uh, more concise than that. Everything that is sin, everything that scripture speaks against, everything that we know God doesn't want us to do. So what is friendship with the world then? Well, friendship with the world, first of all, is accommodation with the world's ways of thinking and speaking. Friendship with the world is accommodation, is finding the halfway mark, trying to find a middle ground. I mentioned God's love. The world would want to take God's vocabulary and alter its meaning. The world is the spiritual suggestion, in this case, perverting vocabulary. It's, it's the suggestion that we be kind to people who are kind to us, that we extend greetings and warmth to people who treat us well or people who are like us. The world talks about love all the time, does it not? We've become used to using the word love in situations that have nothing to do with God. Greeting cards, lawn signs, the stories we tell, the movies we watch, the hopes that we have are all wrapped up in love. But there is a dangerous accommodation here if we accept the world's definition of love. In John chapter 15, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, Jesus has a word about love that most of us will recognize. He's speaking to his disciples. He's on the eve of his departure from them. He's summing up his teaching to them in John 15. 
John 15, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment. (laughs) If I have to sum it up in one, one commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. Friendship with God is following his commands. Friendship with Jesus is doing what he tells us, beginning with loving. And how does he define love? Well, love is self-sacrifice. Love is doing good, not just to those who do good to us, but even to those who mistreat us. This is Jesus' definition of love. Yeah, he says, love your brothers and sisters in the church. But he goes further, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, we're familiar with Jesus' one of his most difficult teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. You must even love your enemies. Do good to people who mistreat you. Love is the way of the cross. Love is the way of the cross. It is not the way of ease and glory. It's not just good feelings. Jesus himself is the definition of love, the prime example. And friendship with the world, in one sense, is accommodating our way of thinking, beginning with our vocabulary, to the world's ways. Accepting a definition of love for ourselves, that is an easy out. A definition of love without the cross. So what is accommodation, excuse me, what is friendship with the world? Well, it's partly accommodation with the world. Speaking God's words in the world's ways. Saying what he says, but not meaning what he meant. Accommodation with the world. Friendship with the world, secondly, is, as Augustine said, it's seeking to find our blessings in this world. Yeah, we'll take blessings, Lord, and we know right where to find them. God promises to meet the needs of those who seek him. We talked about this briefly last week as we were talking about prayer. He promises to meet our needs. But we have this kind of subtle move that we make sometimes where we redefine our needs to be whatever we want. Whatever we think would make us happy at that moment. And then we expect God to meet those needs. And so we can put in this category things like security, comfort. Wealth. Didn't God promise to take care of us? We affluent Westerners ask. But we redefine God's promise so that it neatly fits into the physical realm of existence, into this temporary world. Again, we may use spiritual language, but our frame is entirely earthly. Friendship with the world is seeking our blessings in this world alone. Trying to use God's things in our ways for our own earthly benefits. And finally, friendship with the world is compromise with sin. This is an all-encompassing category. Whatever God defines as wrong is wrong. And we have to, to stand there, neither more or less. He has said that faithfulness is a marriage covenant between one man and one woman forever. Sexual faithfulness, emotional faithfulness, relational faithfulness. This is attacked from a thousand directions in our era. Ones that we know well as evangelicals who are often smeared in the public eye. 
but that has attacks within the church as well, failings on our part. Without being mean-spirited culture warriors or nasty partisans, we cannot compromise with sin, either attacks on faithfulness from outside or attacks on faithfulness from inside. For some of us, the temptation to accommodate the world comes from sins that are progressive. And for some of us, the temptation to compromise with the world comes from sins that are traditional. We have to be on guard for both. We cannot, we cannot choose to be partisans in the culture war. That's accommodating to the world. And we can add to this. Friendship with the world is compromised with sin, and the sins that James has, James has mentioned in this book, I'll just recount them briefly. Favoring the rich being careless with our speech, being envious, being ambitious for ourselves, pursuing our own pleasures, which leads to self-centered prayers, like we saw last week, and conflicts with others. There can be no compromise with sin, James says. This leads to hostility with God. But why does James give this warning? Ponder this. Why this word and why here in this book? Well, some Christians must think that they can have both. Some Christians must have found a way that they think they can accommodate the world, be at peace with the world around them, and still be at peace with God. And James wants to warn these believers not to let their hearts wander into that. His words are, are, are very sharp here. He doesn't just say friendship with the world is enmity with God. He says, if you desire friendship with God, if you want friendship with God, excuse me, friendship with the world, if you want friendship with the world, you're making yourself an enemy of God. These Christians are apparently attempting to split the difference. They want to maintain a relationship with God and enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. And here's the danger. Here's the danger. James's warning is not to Christians who have openly denied Jesus. It's to people who, like us, are in church on a Sunday morning. He's speaking to Christians who are still listening to him. People who haven't said, I'm done with that gospel stuff. James's warning is for those who have not openly rejected Christ or the gospel. These people think they can maintain a relationship with God and with the pleasures of this world, and such compromise is not possible. There is no neutrality. Jesus said as much in Matthew 12, 30. He says, uh, whoever is not for me is against me. Whoever doesn't stand with us is against us. So, I know what probably comes to mind for some of us is Puritanism, monasticism. Does rejecting friendship with the world mean that we must all join a monastery, become nuns and monks, live out the rest of our lives with as little physical, relational, technological, intellectual engagement with 
the things around us as possible? And the answer is certainly no. Certainly no. Some Christians have gone this direction, though. And, and it's tempting because it's easier. The reason that monasticism grew so quickly, people became monks and nuns, is because it felt like an easy way to fulfill this. All right, you don't want me to be part of the world? I'll just go off into the desert. I'll eat less food. I'll beat my body. I won't get married. I'll resist all the the physical things around me. But this this is too low a definition of the world because the monk and the nun carry with them into the monastery their own sin. They carry a compromise with the world into their own cells with them. And so we have to be aware of this. We ourselves are always tempted wherever we are, no matter how much we deny physically around us. No, rejection of friendship with the world does not mean that sort of easy break with physical things. We can look, for instance, at Jeremiah 29. I love this chapter in Jeremiah. He's talking to the exiles And this is actually really relevant to us. If you want to turn to Jeremiah 29, very relevant. He's talking to people who are, have been taken away from their country, just like we heard at the end of Kings, by an evil force that stands against them. The king of Babylon takes them away from Jerusalem, brings them to Babylon. And Jeremiah is writing to these people who think, you know what? I know what the world is. The world is the power of Nebuchadnezzar. It's this world leader who's godless. He's a pagan. And so resisting the world means resisting him. And Jeremiah says, not exactly. (laughs) Not exactly. This is what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 4, to these exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses. And live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of a pagan nation, he says, love those people around you. Seek their good. It's not withdrawal from the world. It's engagement with the world. And what he goes on to say to them is, but have nothing to do with false religion, either false prophets who claim to speak on God's behalf and tell them uh, all these false things, or, of course, with the religion of Babylon, with the pagan religions around you. Friendship with God does not mean that we cannot exist in the world around us. We continue to engage with the world, but we do so as those who put God's commands first. We do not seek any compromise with the things that God calls sin. And we can give more examples of that. This is the basic outcome of the book of Ecclesiastes as well. Here's the essence of it. God is calling for our full allegiance to him, not apart from the physical things around us, but in the midst of them. He knows that we'll be tempted day in and day out to compromise 
right, left, and center. And he says, he says, you can be faithful there and I will hold you firm. Verse 5 is one of the more difficult verses in the New Testament. Uh, And if you are reading out of a different version than I am when I read verse 5 and your Bible says something that sounded totally different, well, don't be surprised. (laughs) The text in Greek is very clear. There's no... Uh, variations in the original text, but the translation is difficult. Here's the essence of it. Verse 5 is intended to support verse 4. Whatever's being said here, whether it's God's spirit that's yearning within us jealously for us, or whether it's our own spirits that are intended to be yearning here, God desires our full allegiance. That's what we should take away from this. God desires our full allegiance. And I think whatever translation you're reading out of, you'll find that that fits. God wants our full allegiance. And if it's God's jealousy that's being referred to here, we have plenty of examples of this all throughout the Bible. God is a jealous God. He doesn't hesitate to call himself such. True, faithful love is always jealous love in the right sense. It's always jealous love. It wants for itself the fullness of that which it loves. And God calls us to that. He calls us to love him alone in the midst of the world. Not withdrawal from the world, not friendship with the world, but love of God in the midst of it. That's the first thing we see here. There is a dangerous friendship, and we are all potentially tempted by it. Secondly, James adds then a greater hope, a greater hope, namely that God's, that God gives more grace. God gives more grace. When, when James says these sort of things, you adulterous people, and then he, he warns them of whatever this compromise in their lives is that he's calling them to, to turn away from. When they see this compromise in their lives, he's telling them, he's telling them where to look. Look to God for help. Look to God for help first. He offers to give us what we need. Let me read verse 6 again. Just because it, it, it puts this point so simply and directly for us. After all these things, after we've seen this compromise in our lives, James says, but God gives more grace. God gives more grace. And then he gives this quote from Proverbs chapter 3. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Have you compromised with sin, brothers and sisters? Have you perhaps hurt your spouse, done or said things to your husband or your wife that ought not to be said? Have you dishonored your parents? This is a sin that that was received a capital punishment in the Old Covenant. Not a small thing. Have you sought the wealth of this world in some way that you thought you could navigate between these the rock and the hard place of total commitment to the world and total commitment to God? Have you been ashamed of Christ and His words in public places? James points us back to God. He says, do not be slow in turning to him for all this. God gives more grace. 
God gives more grace. This is one of the, the, the significant arguments within the history of Christian theology is, what is the extent of the atonement? What is the extent of the atonement? What will the blood of Christ cover in our lives? And James's answer is, for those who turn to Christ, it will cover everything. It will cover everything. All you have to do is come to him. And he gives more grace. Whatever that sin is, whatever the, whatever the, the nagging voices in your conscience are, the grace of God is more. And the, the point he wants to drive us to here is consider what God did for us. He gave his only son to die in our place. The cost is very great. So when you look at yourself, don't downplay your own sin. Do not accept any compromise with sin or the world around you. Don't think that your sins are not that significant. And yet, for all that, turn to Christ because God's grace is more. God gave nothing less than the greatest payment that he could in our place. He gave his own son to sacrifice his life. And so there is no lack in the atonement. Whatever you bring to God, he will cover with the grace that he offers you in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And to whom does God give this grace finally? To the humble. That's the third thing we see here. He gives this grace to the humble. And so James calls us to action. This may be a little surprising to us here, not what we're perhaps expecting to see. This last section has 10 imperatives in it, 10 commands, 10 separate commands. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, 10 times. This is no cheap grace. This is no cheap grace, this call to action. This is not what we're accustomed to hearing We're used to hearing gospel calls that just tell us, you don't have to do anything. It's so easy. (laughs) Come to God. And that's true. And this is also true. To whom does God give grace? To the humble. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who lived at a time when he saw some of the most significant compromise in the German church with forces that were totally opposed to Christianity, wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Cost of discipleship. He was a pastor in Germany right on the cusp of uh, World War II. And he writes about cheap grace. Uh, I, uh, let, me, let me read this brief section. It's on the, the PowerPoint here so you can follow along. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. On the other hand, what the Bible preaches is costly grace. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out 
the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Ten times in this passage, James calls for action. Don't see these two in opposition to each other. A call for action and the promise of more grace as soon as you come to God. They're not opposed to each other. They work in perfect tandem. This is biblical Christianity. I'm going to try and summarize these. I'm not going to touch on every one, but I will focus on a few of them. First, James says, submit to God. It's important to point out this is an active work. It's not passive. We often think of submission as kind of standing someplace and then doing nothing. That's not what James has in mind here. Submission to God is like a soldier's submission to his commanding officer's orders. He does what he's told. Submit to God. Do what he says and seek to know what he wants. Secondly, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I can't skip over this because sometimes Christians, I think, uh, get this wrong. We carry around these great fears as if the power of the evil one can enslave us now that we're Christians. Here, James gives us a promise. All that's necessary, all that's necessary for a Christian to get free of the power of the evil one is to resist him. You don't have to have some precisely worded prayer to get out from under the power of the devil. If you are a Christian, resist him, and he will flee from you. Simply turn from his temptations. Next, James encourages these believers to seek after God. This kind of encompasses several of these commands here. He says, draw near to God, in verse 8. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. If I told you where to find the greatest treasure in the world. And I told you that it was unguarded. (laughs) We'd all set out right now. You'd leave service and go and find it. That's what James is doing here. He's telling us where the treasure that we long for is. God himself is willing to meet us. He's not distant and far off. The way to find God is not mysterious. It is not for just the holy few the rarefied Christian who arrives at that next stage of spirituality. God himself is willing to meet with you. And James says, draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. God has revealed himself fully, fully in Jesus. That's why our doctrine of the incarnation of Christ is so significant. He is fully God and fully man. When we meet Jesus in the pages of Scripture, in his words that he's spoken to us, 
We, we do not have some second-rate access to God. We have God himself. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus, tells us what he will be like, and the New Testament tells us how he fulfilled all of those expectations. Through Jesus, we may speak to God as our own father and ask him anything. Like every good father, he loves to hear us. He loves to answer our requests. He gives us everything that we need. And when Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he drew together Jew and Gentile to make in himself a new family, one new thing, unlike anything seen before, so that all those who come to God through Jesus will meet him. Drawing near to God means reading his word, making our requests known to him in prayer, and joining the family in corporate worship and in smaller gatherings. Drawing near to God is not a mystery. It's not far off from us. Drawing near is offered to all of us as we seek God in his word, in prayer, and in the corporate gathering of the church. So, I want to point something out here, though, because it's easy to miss this, and we often get this wrong in our own spirituality. We, we do not have to wait for a desire to seek God. We do not have to wait for a desire to seek God and then seek him. James says the opposite. He doesn't say, well, wait until your emotions are high and then seek him. James calls on Christians to initiate. He says to you, brother, sister, draw near to God. And then in response, God will draw near to us. Many of us act the opposite of this. We act out the exact opposite in our own lives. Well, yeah, I haven't been real regular in my Bible reading because, I don't know, I'm just not really feeling it right now. I'd read my Bible more if only I felt the presence of God. I'd seek him in prayer if, you know, I met him when I went there. This is a religion that only acts when the feelings and emotions are present. And James teaches us to do the opposite here, surprisingly. Regardless of whether our hearts are full or empty, he says, seek the Lord, draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. It's been said before, our emotions, we often treat them like the engine on the train. If the engine is up and running, it will lead the train someplace. We'll follow them. But I think that's exactly backwards. The, the, our emotions should be like the caboose. They should be at the back end of the train. We go when we know we're supposed to, and we expect our emotions to follow. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Don't wait, brothers and sisters, until your emotions are high, until you feel it. Seek God, and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And uh, the two final aspects here we see are repentance and humiliation, or mourning, weeping. First, repent for your sins. The middle of verse 8 there, James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That, that phrase, double-minded, it's a word that James probably made up. He used it at the beginning of the, his book in chapter 1, verse 8. And he said, hey, listen, the person who's double-minded shouldn't expect their prayers to be answered either. Someone who's double-minded is someone who's compromised with the world. Again, we hear him calling. If you're compromised... Come to Christ. His grace is more. And specifically what he wants of us is repentance for those sins. 
Cleanse your hands, outward actions. Purify your hearts, inward desires. Weep and be humiliated. Verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. At the very simplest level, to humble yourself means to get yourself low. To, to make yourself low. It could actually mean physically get low. Get down on your hands and knees, bowing down uh, to a king who is greater than you, that sort of thing. In this case, he means that we should recognize our lowliness, our spiritual lowliness, that we are people who are broken, people who are sinful, people who are compromised. We find repentance and humiliation combined, in fact, between verse 8 and 10. Look at verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is bitter medicine. The call of God for people who are sinful is not just some simple ritual act. So many of the world's religions promise this, even religions that bear the name of Christianity. In the Old Covenant, we saw the people of God misunderstood this as well. They thought, you know, if I just bring an animal to the altar, sacrifice the animal, all my sins will be done away with, and then I'm at peace with God. I can go live my life confidently. But he said, you're, you are bringing, you're bringing sacrifices without bringing your hearts to me. It's your hearts that I want. And so the call that James gives us here is weep. Mourn. Turn your laughter upside down. B, do not continue in an unwillingness to change your ways. Come with tears. Do not come, and this is the error, do not come with the expectation that you can just do some simple transaction. God has a contractual obligation with us. I come and say, sorry, we're all good here. I just go out and live my life the way I've always wanted to. This danger continues in the church. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Yes, we should accept his sacrifice. And the call for us as Christians, therefore, is an inward turn. First and foremost, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. And when you're in the presence of God, he reveals who you truly are. He uncovers your sins. He leads us to a depth of humiliation Humiliation, uh, not just humility. We think of humility often as kind of this, uh, uh, this status that we want to have. Yeah, I want to be thought of as a humble person. But humiliation is this stepping downwards. It's a being torn down. I mean, don't look at me. James is the one who says that we should turn this way. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And here's the promise. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Wrestle with this, brothers and sisters. If there's any place in your life where there's compromise, where you have held back some part of yourself from full surrender to God, from giving him the first place in your life, humble yourself. Repent, mourn, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. He will lift you up. 
Ironically, the way down is the way up. And I want to pray that before we close here. Let us each search our hearts. This prayer is from the Valley of Vision. We pray with me, please? O Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the Valley of Vision where I live in the depths, but I see you in the heights. I am hemmed in by mountains of sin, and I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown. Let us find your light in our darkness, your life in our death, your joy in our sorrow, your grace in our sin, your riches in our poverty, your glory in our value, in our valley. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.